Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God and those keys, keys to the kingdom. What are the keys of the kingdom? The keys of the kingdom are keys. It's based on what we need to know to seek the kingdom. You know, the the pathway that Christ gave us to seek that kingdom as God and his righteousness. Now, we're always saved by grace. Does everybody get that clear? But you need to be repenting, which means turning around and going a different way, the straight way of Christ. And those that along that way, you will need little bits of information to help you find that way, which are the keys to the kingdom. And one of the keys to the kingdom is clearly and broadly described by Christ when he talks to Simon and said that the keys to the kingdom had to do with this rock of faith that allowed Peter to receive divine revelation from God himself instead of flesh and blood revealing something to Peter. This was what made Peter the rock. Simon the Rock. It wasn't Simon being so... That guy kept uh, denying Christ three times. Uh, You know, he he screwed up a lot. Uh, He was not the Rock, but the faith, the divine revelation. Blessed are you, Simon, because you know this not by the knowledge of men or the, the flesh and blood itself has revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven, the spiritual God the Father had revealed something to him. And that was what Christ was going to build his church on. That inner revelation directly from God where God is writing upon writing upon your hearts and writing upon your minds directly. Not through some uh, theologian or someone with a Ph.D. in uh, in Bible studies. But you're just going to know this is right. And, and I'm reminded of uh, the story of Huck Finn by uh, Mark Twain. And since this is the theme of the bee, Mark of the Beast, let's talk about Mark Twain. What What did he do with Huck Finn? Huck Finn was going to help Jim become a free man so he could get back to his family and take care of his family. And that's something an abolitionist would do. And Huck Finn had been taught by men that being an abolitionist was a bad thing. And so he was thinking that I'm going to help Jim. And that's because I'm a low-down, good-for-nothing, sinful abolitionist. And I'm going to go to hell for helping Jim because everybody in church had taught him that being an abolitionist was a sin. But he just had to go help Jim. And he knew he was going to be condemned for it in his head. But his heart said, help Jim. And he's going to do it anyway. And of course, this is Mark Twain playing with modern religion that had in modern religion of his time, that had made it a crime, a sin, to help out your fellow man. 
he wasn't enticing Jim to run away. He was simply helping Jim take care of his family, get back to his family. And that's that was his motivation. He had this torn feeling in his heart. I was just talking to somebody the other day about the fact that uh, my great, 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 uh, maybe one more great-grandfather, one of them was kicked out of the Quaker Church because he joined the Virginia Regiment with George Washington back in the 1700s. I mean, they were here even before that, our relatives. And... Uh, and then his, he, he was let back into the Quaker Church after the American Revolution was over, and he actually even died on the missions. But uh, his father, when he was very old, I mean, excuse me, his son, when he was very old, was smuggling slaves in the Underground Railroad. And, of course, that was not accepted by many of the Quakers, and yet it was accepted by many others. And so the Quakers had a split, and there came a group that became known as the Schism Quakers, the ones that had separated off, and those were the abolitionist Quakers who would help a slave in the Underground Railroad. And uh, so he was kicked out of the Quaker Church, but led into the Schism Quakers. And then a little while later, his uh, uh, daughter married somebody who was in the regular Quaker church. Well, you couldn't do that. You couldn't marry somebody in the schism Quakers if you were a Quaker. And they were both kicked out of their local congregation. And we actually, after three generations in a row being kicked out, we never went back. So we were never Quakers again. But we were always uh, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's really what you want to do. You don't want to be belonging to another religion where it will be imposing its particular brand or philosophy or private interpretation of the truth upon you. But you do want to come together and help one another because that's part of seeking the kingdom. That's one of those keys, too. If you receive divine revelation, then you begin to understand something based on the fact that God is revealing it to you in your heart. Then you need to act upon that even if it goes contrary to what your church, the church you've gone to, your religion, what you call religion, has been taught to you. You need to follow that divine revelation. And in the last show uh, we had on this subject, which would be uh, session 9, we're in session 10 on the Mark of the Beast, I talked about uh, Francis... Chan, who is a pastor down in Simi Valley, and he had told a story in one of his uh, talks, sermons, about one of his pastors who was traveling in a car, and they saw somebody driving in front of him, and that individual hit, or they saw the individual in front of them hit a man on a bicycle, knocked him down. The man on the bicycle got up. He wasn't killed or anything, and he got up, and he started pounding on the old man's car. And it ended up that the person who had hit him was like a 70-year-old man. And uh, then he went over to the driver door and opened up the driver door and began to pound on the old man himself. And the pastor got out and ran over and put himself between, you know, like a good Marine, he put himself in harm's way. He put himself between the man, the uh, biker uh, bicycler and the uh, 
old man and tried to protect the old man and calm the biker down. Well, the biker began to pound on him and was knocking him down and hitting him and punching at him. And uh, he was, you know, about to go down and he finally struck back to stop. He didn't seem to have any other means by which to stop. And he came up with one uppercut and hit the guy and knocked him out cold. And then, of course, now he has to stay there. His car's in the road, and the old man's car is in the road. And they called the police, and the police are finally coming. And then he had to explain what had happened. But uh, Francis was uh, the the pastor was just excited about the fact that this guy got to do something to save this old man. He didn't didn't necessarily want to hurt the bicycle guy, but he wanted him to stop hitting people. And he had the courage to go up and get involved. There were all kinds of people on the street, but nobody else was getting involved. And we talked last night about these instances down in, in, you could pick Southern California or you could pick New York or you could pick almost anywhere where someone is being attacked or raped or stabbed or murdered or robbed. And people are all around. And nobody comes to their aid. Nobody has the courage to come to their aid. Nobody has the motivation to come to their aid to stop this. And there was just a shooting the other day in a school in Colorado again where a boy with a shotgun, and I don't know the exact details of it, but I heard of it. And uh, uh, he was looking for a particular teacher uh, who was also the librarian, uh, Mr. Murphy or something, and uh, and he came into school with a shotgun looking for him. And uh, supposedly, finally, Another student confronted the guy and said, you know, probably trying to talk him down and not do this. And anyway, he ended up getting shot himself. And then the the student carrying the gun ended up going and committing suicide, probably on psychotropic drugs prescribed by a doctor. I would assume that. And I can only assume that. But I think that, you know, most of these shooters, this is what's happening. And they end up with this pattern of suicide, which is the these are the keys to hell is the, what you see these people doing because that uh, they end up trying to escape from what has gotten in them. And what has gotten in them has gotten in them for a lot of reason, and it has began to control their actions, and they begin to act upon those things that have gotten into them, the not-so-divine revelations, and they be, are given over to a reprobate mind, and before they kill themselves, they want to kill others and create anger and vengeance in the heart of others. And this is this is a pattern that we see, but the kingdom of God, it's going to lead you in a different path, a, a different direction. It's going to have a different result. And it should be showing signs of courage. Signs of willingness to stand between yourself and evil, violence. And uh, you should be able to stand there with some amount of success. And what you're doing, and and this is what we're talking about in the, the Mark of the Beast, is the Mark of the Beast is not a physical mark at first. At first, it's a spiritual mark. Just like the mark of God, and we talked about the mark of God in the last session. And the mark of God was to be put into your foreheads, into your minds. And it was faith. That's what the mark of God was in the Old Testament. Faith. 
But not, not blind faith where you just believe in an idea and you say, Lord, Lord, and you sing songs and you go to churches and you get feelings and you uh, work up emotions. But real faith is an actual communion between you and God where you are receiving divine revelation as to what you should do and not do, what is right and what is wrong. You're receiving that information. You're eating of the tree of life is what you're doing. And But you're not only receiving that fruit, you're acting upon that fruit. Because when you act upon that fruit, then you have communion. You have an up and down connection between you and God. A reciprocation. In, in nature, there's always this reciprocation. This symbiotic relationship between you and the Spirit of God. And it begins to flow through you. Now when you face moments of violence, foes of righteousness, the demons, the beasties of hell, you do not face them alone. You face them with the Spirit of God in you and with you. And his holy angels, so to speak, behind you and sometimes out in front of you. And you're going to need that in confronting the beast, which is what the series was all starting about. It's not only about the mark of the beast, this detailed study of the mark of the beast, which you can read on our website, but it is about the the beasties and how to confront the beasties and the beast and the spirit of the beast. You must have the antithesis of the spirit of the beast. You must have that mark of God in you. You must be acting on that faith. And so when we look at the messages that Christ gave, often in parables, secreting what they really mean by putting them in story form where you could interpret them this way and that way. And, you know, I'm always reminded of John Cleese and his uh, reference to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, one of his movies, I think it's Monty Python or whatever, but... Uh, Somebody says uh, uh, that uh, he's listening to Blessed Are the Peacemakers. And he doesn't hear it right. He says, Blessed Are the Cheesemakers. And somebody begins to question that. Uh, what does that mean? And he says, well, He doesn't mean Blessed Are the Cheesemakers, but, but all makers of dairy products. In other words, that guy heard it wrong, too. And and this is how modern doctrines have been created, is they miss one little part or point. Of course, he makes it in a humorous light. But the reality is, is you miss one little part of what Christ is saying. And then you start building on that error. And you know what you'll end up with? 40,000 denominations all going in a different direction, none of them headed to the kingdom of God and his righteousness because they've missed part of the instructions. They've made a wrong turn. <laughs> and we're, we're going to have to uh, take a look at some of these turns so that we can get back on the path. And, and that's what I was kind of noticing. And, and I'll, I'll try to, somebody's promised to show me some more of the videos of uh, Francis Chan to see if uh, 
if uh, he, uh, you know, some of the other things that he has to say and find out what exactly he is beginning to see and what he may need help with seeing. And we'll try to get a hold of him and uh, share some of what we have begun to see. And that's, that's important. That's part of that action. That when you begin to see the truth, you have to share it with others. And there's also a danger in that because sometimes you're so excited about seeing something that you didn't see that you think you can run down to your local church and you can tell everybody what you see and they'll see it too because it's so clear and it's so obvious. And then you will come upon another revelation is that all along the people that you thought were your fellow Christians are actually not aligned with Christ at all. And they will reject you and turn turn away from you. And they will even persecute you and try to manipulate you and compel you to see things their way. Because misery loves company. They want you to see things their way. So anyway, in talking about the beast, we covered the fact that it was from this word therian, uh, which is a diminutive of thera, and mean, which means to trap or to hunt or to destroy something. To, you know, it actually is translated beast or wild beast or venomous beast, poisonous beast. And of course, you know, many of these school shootings, the the kids are on these psychotropic drugs, and which we've talked about in other shows. And, and quoting doctors who say how dangerous they are, how not good they are, how they keep the child from ever dealing and coping in a natural way with his problems, and they actually compound the problem eventually. They make them feel good in the immediate present. They make them be able to seemingly cope with the problem, but they're actually painting it over. And underneath, there's this underlying infection, which can lead to depression and anger and resentment. And what it is, is it darkens a part of your mind and your being, and other things can get in there and influence you. And if certain things get in there and influence you, they will lead you to this destructive path of killing other people and then killing yourself. An amazing pattern. The one individual who was shooting people in a, a gun-free zone in a uh, one of these uh, store areas that uh, malls that had uh, you know the walkway inside and everything and and uh, he came in there and he was shooting people and there's not supposed to be anybody with a gun well it happened to be a guy who was a security guard there who was off duty and actually brought his gun because he had a concealed weapons permit in the state of Oregon and all he did was pull the gun and point at the guy he took cover. He, he didn't shoot at the guy. He didn't shoot the guy. He didn't yell and scream at the guy. Uh, he was afraid to shoot because there were other people running around in the background. He didn't want to hit them, so he's being very responsible. But he just pointed his gun at the guy, and the guy was absolutely astonished. What's that guy doing with a gun in a gun-free zone? Because that's where these guys go. They don't go to the rifle range and try this. They go to the gun-free zones. Because they know they're free to do and wreak their havoc. They're not really courageous. They're they're not stupid. They know they don't want to go down to the police rifle range and try this. They go to gun-free zones and they try it. Anyway, he just seen the gun, took off running. You know, his his gun had jammed. 
because you had those big clips. You know, those big clips, they save lives <laughs> because almost every case you see, uh, these guys, the big clips, end up jamming and uh, and uh, they end up being uh, uh, able to, somebody's able to rush them or pull another gun or something because... Uh, and and somebody, the vice president, suggested that you only have a shotgun. You don't need these big clip guns. You know, in Texas and a number of other places, including evidently this uh, school in Colorado, the shotgun was the most lethal weapon. Shotguns are dangerous. A pump shotgun is terribly uh, dangerous. It seldom jams. And uh, with the right ammunition, you can do devastating damage with that. So, but then uh, once they get rid of one gun, they'll try to get rid of another, and we'll all have gun-free zones, and then we'll all be just as vulnerable. But that that guy just pointed the gun at the individual, and he ran down a hallway when he was not under a threat. Nobody chased him or anything, and he shot himself. Same pattern. You see, because he's connected to a pattern of self-destruction and wanting to destroy as many people as possible when he goes. And that is a spiritual imprint that comes from the world of destruction, from this Thera that wants to trap and hunt and destroy. And you will see the fruits of that spirit in people who are subject to that spirit. And you become subject to that spirit in many ways, again, by choosing a path in a particular direction and acting upon the revelations of that evil spiritual path and doing certain things and delighting in doing certain things that takes you down that path until you're on this self-destruction path. And and you are a zombie that, that cares nothing for its own safety but uh, is actually dam- damaging and devouring and destroying others around them. And they can do this on a very simple emotional level, uh, and they can do it on a lot of different levels. And when you see it in, in you know, manifesting itself, it, it looks like a horrible thing, but in a lot of times it's much more subtle. And it's destroying children and, and families and people all around them. And it's that same spirit in just different levels, different amounts. So anyway, we talked about two fundamental classifications of government, one that operates by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, and uh, where it takes care of the needy of society, fulfills your obligation to society through this faith, hope, and charity, and not by force and violence. And then there's this other system, this other system, that operates by force. And of course, John the Baptist was preaching the kingdom of God that until John the Baptist, people were trying to establish these kingdoms of the world by force. And you find two places in the Bible where it talks about them. They translate them differently. You know, it uses the same original Greek words. But this was the conflict of God. And we'll talk about exactly how that relates to your search for the kingdom of God.
Welcome back to the Keys of the Kingdom, and we're talking about this beast and the image of the beast. And uh, we're looking in Revelations at uh, several of the different quotes and looking at some of the words and also looking at the time of the writing of Revelations and the times of Jesus Christ before this revelations and many as we said at the beginning of the series we show that there's some evidence that many theologians begin to think that the revelations of uh, John of Potmos was actually from somebody known as John of Potmos and not from John the Apostle and there's a lot of reasons just in the technical writing of the book uh, that would lead us to believe that and also some of the other documents that we find in that time, and there is some evidence that the original source of this revelation was uh, John the Baptist himself, and uh, this was the messenger, the angel. We see an angel kind of appearing, a messenger appearing and, and telling John of Patmos this revelation, and it appears that uh, his source may have been John the Baptist. And so that would make the prophecies of Babylon possibly referring to uh, men like Nero being the beast. And and many of the early church fathers believed that Nero was this beast. And they believed that he would return. Even to 400 AD, they believed that he would return. And supposedly he died by being stabbed and... uh, in the head, but they believed that he would actually return, and was it him that was going to return, or his progeny was going to return? And we'll talk about the difference between the beast and the image of the beast later. But uh, anyway, we covered all that before. We were just talking about if uh, if uh, in the previous session about uh, if we would not be ruled by this government of God that operates by faith, hope, and charity, and the perfect law of liberty then we might be ruled by another system that was contrary to that, and that system ruled by force. It was men who exercised authority. And how do you choose these two is that you you act upon them, you look to them, you apply to them, you pray to them. Application, prayer, these are the same things. And you were to not pray to the fathers of the earth, but to pray to your Father in heaven. Well, who were these fathers of the earth? They were the Patronuses and Patres of the earth, which included the emperor of Rome and the senators of Rome, and actually, in principle, would also include the Sanhedrin of Judea. You would not pl- apply to them or pray to them for benefits, and so you would not solicit to them for their benefits because they only had something to give you because they took it away from somebody else. So how are you going to get, you know, and this is what they asked John, how are you going to get help if you need help? And he says, well, if you don't have a coat, you know, pray before your father that he, he gives you a coat. Now, how's a God, is God in the coat manufacturing business? No. He gives it to you through others following Christ, following God, following the ways of God. In other words, someone who has extra coat shares with those that don't have enough. This is what charity is all about. Charity is not to give to somebody so that he can remain an alcoholic. And he, 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 he doesn't die because you keep feeding him and keep helping him. But he also doesn't sober up because you keep feeding him and you keep helping him. 
You need to make life as difficult as sin would be. We're not here to alleviate the responsibility and the and the repercussions of sin. We're here to call people to repentance. So if somebody repents, yeah, you want to help them. But if they refuse that help, don't squander your charity on the foolish. You weaken them. And we talked about this, that this was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, that in time of affluence they did not strengthen the poor, they weakened the poor. And we see this with modern uh, socialist state everywhere, in every country. They weaken the poor. And so the charity of the church should not be weakening the poor too, but we should be strengthening them. We need to go into where the needy are with tough love so that people will show the fruits of repentance. So anyway, we we mentioned the great quote from Plutarch, uh, the real destroyers of liberties of the people, liberties that are given to you by God. Liberty is the right to choose. And in the book Higher Liberty, we, we talk about this. But that's what liberty is. It's your right to choose, and you were given that right by God. You should not give it away or sell it in order to obtain benefits from men who exercise authority. And if you think that that's okay, then you're not acting upon the revelation that should be coming to you in your heart, so much so that you're not even receiving it anymore, and you don't get it. This is what Christ is talking about. This is what John the Baptist is talking about. He who spreads amongst them bounties, donations, benefits, rewards, are the destroyers of liberty, because they do not spread it amongst them freely. They spread it amongst them with a deal. You know, there are terms. They require an agreement. Even though they are unbelievers, they don't believe in faith, open charity, and the perfect law of liberty. They require that you sign an agreement under penalty of perjury, under oath, under swearing. And above all, we were supposed to stop the taking of these oaths. And anyway, when you do this, when you make these agreements, they end up appointing rulers. They take your sons and daughters. They make their instruments of war. They weaken the poor, and they destroy society like those fellows who start killing people and then commit suicide. They will do the same thing because it's the same spirit that's operating. It's the spirit of the beast, the terror. The one who goes about and devours who he will. And what is your protection against that? Only the Holy Spirit. You must receive the mark of God. You must turn around. You must head back to your father's house. So that you begin to manifest that spirit of God. And stop the crime. Stand in the way of the crime. That's where the church should be, is standing in the way of the crime. What is the crime? Covetousness. Do covet means. They're destroying you. So anyway, we talked about parents, patria, and obey the father, and who's your father, who's your daddy, who's your sugar daddy, who's the person you pray to for your benefits. Is it your father in heaven? Or is it some other father of the earth? Not, I'm not talking about your natural father. I'm talking about this office of patri. That's what you see in the Latin, in the Greek text. Is this Latin word patri? Call no man patri. Well, of course, everybody in that crowd knew who the patri was. That's the senators of Rome and the Sanhedrin. They were the patri. They were the ones you prayed to for your benefits at that time. And how did it get to that point? Um, 
and and I, we also looked at number seven too, and you can go read that yourself. The princes of Israel, that was the heads of every family. Everybody was kings and priests in their own house in Israel before they had a, elected a king, who was going to take and take and take and take and take. And that's the that's the way God wants you to live. And and you may not be even be able to do that in the country in which you live now, but you can start taking back the responsibilities of being the lovers of one another. You know, this is what he's telling. It's not just loving from the pew. It's not just sitting there in the pew and saying, oh, yeah, I love the person next to me. I don't know who he is. I don't know what kind of a home he's going to. I don't know if he needs any real help. And if he does, I hope he doesn't bother me. I hope he goes to the government and gets that help, even though the government is full of people who exercise authority one over the other, and Christ said not to be that way. But I love Jesus. But you're not showing the fruits of repentance. You don't even show me that you know the way that Christ was talking. So how does this relate? So we're going to take this another step further. And, you know, and one of the last quotes we did in, in the show before was this quote from William Penn. As long as you look to governments, if you will not be ruled by governments, I mean, if you will not be ruled by uh, are governed by God, then you will be ruled by tyrants. As long as you look to government, this is actually, that wasn't William Penn who said that that was a fellow in Great Britain. So as long as you look to government to solve your problems, you always suffer tyranny. So there, there's two sources of the same idea. And yet, most people don't realize that. They think, well, the only place we can look to is government because the church isn't doing it. Well, the church used to do it before the church was impotent, which the modern church is impotent. They can't, the whole countries, see, well, what do we need to go to church for? We've got the government. We're not, we're, they're not taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of their society. That's somebody else does that. They've taken the job of the, out of the hands of the church. It used to be part of the church was the definition of religion, certainly pure religion, and they do it. Where did this start? Well, it started in Babylon. Herod started it too. In Babylon, Nimrod was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. Herod, and I'll quote here from uh, Jesus in the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls by Barbara Thiering. I'll, I'll read you the quote. Herod's scheme of initiation into a new form of Judaism was immensely successful. Jews everywhere were willing to join the worldwide society. She goes on to say, entry was for members only. They had to show at the door an admission token in the form of a white stone from the River Jordan, which the missionaries who were sent out by Herod gave them at baptism. Those missionaries, with their leather wallets full of white stones, would come back from this uh, with the same wallet full of money in foreign currencies. Once put into the Jewish currency by the money changers, it would be stored in vaults, ready to be used by Herod and his vast building projects 
or any subsequent cause. And we gave examples of how this was their Social Security fund. You had to pay in. And you, you were now numbered because that Hebrew name carved on that white stone had a numerical value because all the letters in Hebrew have a numerical value. And you were registered with the temple and with all the member organizations, which were we call synagogues. And if you had a need, if you, you were blind or if you became crippled or what have you, you would go to your synagogue, show your white stone, and they would provide social welfare for you, free bread, free cheese, free wine, sometimes money. They would provide for you because that was their social welfare. Herod instituted this years before Jesus Christ came. At the same time, Augustus Caesar was implementing the same system. It progressed up until the time of Nero, but it was the system. Uh, Some people didn't like the Jewish rituals. That wasn't important. Herod built another temple, a temple to Roma, a Roman goddess, but implemented the same system of social welfare. Now, in ancient times, this system of social welfare where you sacrificed to your minister, to your church in the wilderness, was called Corbin. Corbin meant sacrifice. And those funds went into a network of ministers and helped the needy in your midst. But that's not the way Herod was doing it. He he created a central treasury where it all funneled into there and then it trickled down back to the people. Well, unfortunately, where you get that much value, they ended up building huge, beautiful temple. Modern church does the same thing, except for they don't even take care of the needy. They do a token ritualistic service to the needy. In Israel, all the needy was provided through the Levites by the sacrifices of the people in a system called Corbin, based on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. But Herod had a system of Corbin based on forced contributions. It wasn't much at the beginning. And lots of money poured in because everybody had to give. There wasn't, you know, like in your churches, you know there are always in your church, no matter if you get big or small, there's always a small group that does all the work. Everybody else just comes and warms the pew. Well, guess what? Those ones who don't do the work, they're salt who's lost their flavor because they're not doers of the word. They come every week and they hear. And, you know, you're preaching good enough, so you got to have a good band. You know, you don't tickle their ears enough, so you got to have other trappings. You know, big screen TV. But you're not even close to what Christ said to do. Love one another. Take care of one another. Provide for one another. Don't pray to the men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. The fathers, the patries, the patronuses of the world. Take care of your needy and pure religion, unspotted by the world. The word there that James uses for world is a word that means constitutional orders and systems of government. Because those systems, taking care of the needy, is not done by faith, open charity, it's done by force. 
John the Baptist was saying to do it the other way. Herod was saying to do it this way. You guys have followed Herod. You're not following John the Baptist. So when somebody talks about the real Jesus, you don't recognize him. The Jesus you believe in is made up by theologians who are not telling you the gospel. And they, they, they run seminaries. You know, when I wrote the book Higher Liberty, part of it was originally from an article and somebody quoted the article and, and a theologian from a seminary criticized the article and, uh, about the higher liberty. And, uh, and not my article. He criticized the one that somebody else quoted my article. But they had written, and he criticized it. And I took his criticisms and went down them one by one. And by the time I was done, the book Higher Liberty was there. <laughs> and so I sent him a copy of the book, and I haven't heard a word from him. Very smart. Head of a seminary. But it absolutely doesn't know the gospel. And he's training ministers, just like Herod was training ministers to go out all, missionaries to go out all over the world. People want to send missionaries to Uganda, missionaries to uh, Santo Domingo, and missionaries to these poor places. They probably know more about the kingdom, you know, like the Wormwood Bible. They know more about the kingdom than these missionaries. These missionaries all went to seminaries and became the walking dead. I'm not going to pick on all of them because I know there's some sincere men out there who genuinely had a vocation and were seeking to do the will of God but were led astray by vain philosophies that have crept in. This is why, as I said in the last program, that these guys create these doctrines for the church and there's very little mention of Christ and what he actually taught. And he's put up a whole page just on Matthew's doctrines, the doctrines that we see Matthew saying came right out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. You won't find hardly any of them in the doctrines of modern churches. He's not just telling you this because he wanted something to say on Sunday or the Sabbath. He's giving you the keys to the kingdom. He's telling you how it works. If he gives you information and you don't act upon it, if you aren't a doer of what he gives you, he's going to take away what he gives you. That's the message in the talents. You know, the three and the two and the one talent. The guy who did nothing with it, he's going to have it taken away. You're not even going to remember what he told you. You have to act upon it. And that's why we created the Living Network, so that you can start acting upon it with others and so that iron can sharpen iron. We're not creating a new religion. We're trying to conform to Christ. And we need ministers, men who are actually receiving the revelations of Christ, because that that's what makes you the unstoppable church, is when it's a conviction in your heart. It's not just an idea in your head. So eventually, many of the citizens of Judea accepted John, uh, cousin Yeshua, a.k.a. Jesus, the King, the Christ, the Anointed. Because 
they turned away from the system set up by Herod, the system of Corbin that made the word of God to none effect. Where people tell you, you know, I have a family that we actually help the, the mother of the family. We cut a quart of wood a year for her, and that's equivalent of about $1,500. Cut and split it and stack it in her her little woodshed. But her family, I talked to one of the family members the other day who live a little ways away, not that far. Now, and they're on a fixed income. I said, everybody's on a fixed income. In other words, they're getting a government check. So that it's not their job to come and help their mother and their grandmother. they got all kinds of excuses why they can't come. But other people who don't receive of the benefits of Herod or Caesar or Nimrod or Babylon, they're out there cutting the firewood for their family, for their, their mother, their aged mother, and fixing their plumbing and, and taking care of her needs. Because the family is on a fixed income from the beast. And they have more in common with the heart of the beast. They were good people, but they have been changed by those they follow and those they pray to and those they seek the benefits of. They have the beast put into their forehead, the spirit of the beast. In Revelation 14.9, we see the the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receiveth his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Are these people, are they going to be condemned? We're going to go through all that. We're going to go through those step by step. So this image of the beast in Revelations 14.9 is translated from the Greek word ekon, which means an image or likeness. Who was the first beast? Was it Babylon or Rome? Or does it matter? Well, it, it, it matters because it's the truth, but it doesn't really matter for your salvation to know that. What it matters for your salvation is are you seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are you creating a national system of charity? and hope based on love and the perfect law of liberty. Because that's what the church was. That's why it was persecuted. We've gone through this in other shows about the conflict of Christianity and the government of Rome and the other governments around throughout the Roman Empire. And it was based on this social welfare system because the Christians weren't a part of that. They wouldn't sacrifice on those altars. They didn't need to. They gathered every week, and those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. That's what that says right there in the stories that come out and the the, uh, apologies that are written by Christians who were martyred. This is where the conflict was. And the world was jealous of them because they were more successful as the world declined in bankruptcy. Because thieves and robbers had broken into their vaults of social welfare and taken the money away and stolen it away, including Nero, including the money changers, including these false pastors and prophets. Oh, they built their big temples and their fancy buildings. But God wants to build with living stones 
He needs those ministers that are unstoppable in their faith, who are willing to sacrifice everything, to lay down everything. If you want to be one of my disciples, you have to give up everything. What was he talking about? He was talking about something they had talked about a thousand years before. This was another way by which to govern yourself on the earth as it is in heaven. And we'll talk more about this next time on Keys to the Kingdom. You'll be surprised. Some of you will be very surprised as to where we will go with this. We will show you how this works today. And then you will know what beast is in you and what beast will never come near you. And the gates of heaven will prevail again. Next time on Keys to the Kingdom. Until then, God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking again about the Kingdom of God, and we're talking about Revelations, and we're talking about the Beast, and we're talking about the Mark of the Beast. And these Keys of the Kingdom are really what we're talking about. And the Secrets of Revelation, we're going to touch on them here and there in this session, which is session 11 on this subject. But if you think you're going to figure this out with the knowledge of men and it's going to help you, it's not. You need to figure this out with the revelation of God. And I'm going to speak about these things and hope that I speak to your personal revelation and bear witness to your personal revelation of what the church and the followers of Christ should be doing. Because even if you knew who the beast was, you knew exactly when he was going to do it, it would not save you. You need to have the Spirit of God. In the time to come, hell will be empty and all the demons will be here. How will you stand against them? You need to put on the full armor of God and the knowledge of what is coming and who is doing what and who is 666 and all this stuff is not going to save you. What you say is not going to save you. Christ is going to save you based on what you do. And he says this over and over again. And Paul does not deny that with the things that he says. Paul preached Christ first. And those who were doing the will is who he was talking to. Those that had repented and were going another way are the ones that he was talking to. If you haven't repented, if you have not heard Christ first, 
and are not only hearers of the word but doers of the word, then you have no need of Paul. You cannot even interpret Paul correctly. You will interpret Paul out of the context of the gospel of Christ, and you will be led down a primrose path to destruction. And the Therians of the world, the beasts of the world, will devour you like zombies in a zombie movie. So in Revelation 13, 17, we see... And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Or, 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 not and, or. Here is wisdom, he says. Let him that understanding, that hath understanding, count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred and three score and six. So the translation is. And we'll go into that in more detail. For many centuries, people thought that was Nero. That this beast was Nero. And there would be this image of this beast. Someone with the same spirit and attitude and intent and deviousness and debauchery of Nero. And we talked about him a little bit at the beginning. He's a despicable individual, but very charismatic. Fooled a lot of Romans. A lot of people who followed the ways of Rome. And at that time, we have to look at the time. At the, uh, when we talk about, you know, was this Babylon? Was Babylon Rome? Were they one and the same? Was Nero the guy with the mark of the beast? We want to understand the spirit of things here. Not so much the details, but the spirit of things. Because without the spirit, we won't have the solution. So we need to understand the spirit that is conflicting with the beast. And we need to make that spirit a part of our own life. And this is what it means to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not Babylon, Rome, the same thing. Are they not all the same as Egypt and Ur and Haran were the same thing? And Abraham had to come out of all those things and and the Israelites had to come out of Egypt and not only just come out physically but actually get the nature of Egypt out of them. Because see, when they first go out there, they start going back to the ways of Egypt and create their golden calf, their central bank. That's what the golden calf was. All the city-states had them. These golden statues where your wealth, the gold, the really transportable wealth. I mean, you can carry a certain amount of silver, but silver isn't as valuable as gold. So if you were traveling with wealth, you want to melt it down into silver, I mean into gold. And then when you get to the the next place, then you can start turning that gold into silver, which is more spendable. You know, I mean, you can carry $20,000 in your pocket in gold today. You'd be hard-pressed to put $20,000 in $100 bills in your pocket. So who who are, was the beast like? And once you understand what the beast is like, you don't need to know the name. You don't need to know what 666 stands for. 
because you know the beast, because you know what he's like. And the image of the beast will be the same. He'll be a similitude. At the time of Jesus, Rome was a faltering republic. It was uh, well on the, its way to this process of decay. And I'll quote here. Each class contributed its share to the common decay. Free citizens were idle, dissipated, sunken. Their chief thoughts of the theater and the arena. Now, how would that play out today? Chief thoughts of what's on TV. You know, who's playing? Whose game is on television? Isn't that the same thing? You know, what you watch in that Coliseum in the box, that TV, and I'm not saying get rid of your TV. I'm saying get rid of your addiction to TV. Anyway, it says the cheap thoughts were of the theater and of the arena. More than 200,000 persons were thus maintained by the state. What of the old Roman stock remained was rapidly decaying, partly from corruption, but chiefly from the increasing cessation of marriage. In other words, marriage was under attack. More and more people were not getting married. They were just living together. More and more children were born out of wedlock. This is the decay of Rome. Does that sound familiar? Half the children in the United States are being raised in single-family homes or not by either of their parents. I mean, single-parent families. There, there was almost this total cessation of marriage. And then what was marriage was being altered. If you look in the Justinian Code, I mean, even the term marriage that we have today comes from this distortion of meritidium in the Justinian Codes. Marriage originally, when you wanted to get married, you went and asked your father and the father of the bride. And they gave permission, license, for you to get married. You couldn't get married without your father's permission, no matter how old you were. Even Samson had to get his father's permission to get married. This is this is because we had a patriarchal society. We still have a patriarchal society, but we have one patriarch who rules the nation, the patronus of our nation, same as Rome. The powers that were in the hands of the individual fathers, the potestas, what they call the imperium in, in the Latin language, was in the hands of every father because they were priests and kings in their own families. Those heads of the families are cut off now. They're already cut off. You know, worry about guillotines. Your head's already cut off. You're not running things. Your daughters and your sons want to get married. They don't ask your permission. They go somewhere else and ask permission. And that place they go is distorting the character of marriage. You know, one of the reasons they had the statutory marriage in Rome was so that masters could marry their slaves. So that what would normally be called an incestuous relationship could be sanctioned by the state. And so that you could get the benefits that were provided by the state to married couples, but not to single couples. And of course that 
because marriage was declining, they removed those, and it didn't matter. It was actually became not to your advantage to get a licensed marriage. Just live together. This is what was going on in Rome. That going on anywhere else in the world today? They actually even sanctioned gay marriages by statute. Natural law said, no, that's not what marriage is. Marriage by natural law is a man and a woman bound together as a family. No more twain but one. That's what natural law says. But they were changing it in Rome because another spirit was living and dwelling in the people of Rome. Not everyone, but enough so that the democracy, the indirect democracy of Rome that had once been the Republic was now being altered by this new spirit creeping into the lives of everyone. So this corruption was partly due to the cessation of marriage and the nameless abominations of what remained of family life. Sanctity of marriage had ceased. Female dissipation and the general disillusionness, dissoluteness, led to the last, to an almost entire cessation of marriage. So this is a progressive thing. Abortion, I'm quoting here from a historical book about those times. Abortion and the exposure and murder of newly born children you know, like when you find a child in a dumpster, were common, tolerated, unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defy description. Now that's from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, chapter 11. That's not a recent book. When that book was written, they didn't know they were going to be describing America. They thought they were describing Rome. But they're describing what we see today. Family values were a chief topic of political rhetoric before every election and during the writing of the new constitution by Augustus Caesar who were promised to return to republican values but did not move the people more towards an empire a socialist indirect democracy you know Augustus was elected to office there was actually he had divided his office into three parts Principas Civitas, which was the president of Rome, the chief citizen of Rome, first citizen of Rome. His wife is even known as Principas Femina, the first lady. Augustus was called emperor or imperator. If you look at Collins' Latin Dictionary, the definition of imperator is commander-in-chief. And he was the commander-in-chief of both the army and the naval forces. This, that, and that second office that he had was that Principal Civitas. It was a one-year term for Principal Civitas. It was a ten-year term for uh, for the Imperator because 
he being the commander-in-chief, was often conducting foreign wars as the Rome had become the policeman of the world. Sound familiar? You see, the same spirit is going to produce the same results. He was extremely popular. Augustus was extremely popular in Judea. And Judea had not yet been conquered by Rome. They were only in there as a peacekeeping force because of a civil war between Aristobulus and Hyrcanus years before. They had been invited in by these two ruling factions because of a civil war. Augustus became emperor because of a civil war. Vast changes took place in the landscape of politics in Rome because of a civil war. Citizens were becoming enfranchised because of a civil war and the changes that civil war wrought in the politics of Rome. Sound familiar? This first citizen or chief executive officer, or as it was often translated, president of Rome, a municipality, in his one-year term of office, asked for one additional office. The third office was Apotheos, 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 appointer of gods, literally translated, appointer of gods. The duties of this office were very clear, and, and they're well known in history for those who actually study his history. The duty of that office was to appoint judges, magistrates, federal magistrates, imperial magistrates to the imperial courts throughout the Roman uh, government and, and throughout the empire to decide imperial matters, federal matters, matters that were under the auspices of the emperor. And those matters increased and grew as the power of the emperor increased and grew and as the power of the individual decreased because the imperium that had once been in the hands of every father of every household and who were now neglecting their responsibility to their neighbor and to their society was now in the hands of the emperor who provided free bread and entertainment circuses to the people. And you could get free admission to the circuses. You'd have to sit with all the people instead of the good seats up front. But you could do it if you had your token, your little EBT token. Now we have TV. You don't even have to go to the Coliseum. You just bring the Coliseum in your house. But he was elected every year. uh, Principal Civitas every year because that was a one-year term of office. Except he didn't always get elected. When Augustus Caesar was out being the commander-in-chief, somebody else was often elected because he just wasn't home to deal with it. They didn't have the communication and transportation. But the guy he promoted would often be elected and take care of that part of the business. But he was elected by a group, a a kind of an electoral college of men, which we call the Senate, and were also referred to as conscripti patri, the conscripted fathers. And Jesus comes along and says, call no man on earth father, but my father in heaven. 
Don't look to these men to be your benefactors because they exercise authority one over the other and you will lose the liberty that God has given you. I've come to set you free and the way to set you free is you take back your responsibilities. You're still going to need permission to be set free. But you're not ready for freedom until you're ready for righteousness. Because freedom without righteousness is rioting. So anyway, the, we can take a look at words like and. And it says worship and receive. Worship and receive can make a great difference in the interpretation of this text. If you merely receive the mark without worshiping the beast, then you do not qualify for the curse that comes. So you can be friends with the unrighteous mammon, but you, you're not really seeking the benefits of the unrighteous mammon. So you do not qualify. If you receive the mark through ignorance or deception or a combination of both, you may still have an obligation bound by what you say. Just like Peter, when Peter was asked, does your master pay the tax? He says, yes. The master takes him aside and says, no, 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 no. Who pays the tax? And after a brief conversation, he says, but you said it. So now we have to make what you said right. This is how important honesty is to God. So you go down and you, you get the funds out of the mouth of a fish and you pay. You have to you have to be friends with the unrighteous mammon, but you have to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that when the unrighteous mammon fails, you will be suitable for his more righteous habitation. You may not have made a conscious decision to pay homage, to worship, to give your allegiance, your faith to the beast. Then you haven't really worshipped it. But you still may have an obligation, and I do not relieve you from that obligation. And Christ did not relieve you from that obligation. But he knew that system would fail. We see in that same quote in Revelation, the word receive. His mark comes from the Greek word labano. It means to take with the hand. You can actually receive it with the hand. This number, this mark, you can receive it with the hand. Lay hold of any person or thing in order to use it. In other words, to get the use of it. To take up a thing to be carried, taken into possession of. I'm reading the definition of this word labano. To appropriate to oneself for one's benefit. To receive what is offered. Not to refuse or reject it. To give him access to oneself. That's what you do when you take up the numerical marker of the beast. You give up the use of yourself, but you are seeking the use of others. You are coveting your neighbor's goods. It's through covetousness, Peter says, that they will make you merchandise. In the word Labano, there is nothing about a tattoo or an injection of a chip into the hand. The taking of the mark is about receiving what is offered. It is simply a matter of not refusing or rejecting an offer. 
And many of you can't even refuse or reject that officer because you have not been seeking the kingdom. But I tell you, if you will come together in the spirit of Christ, he will provide for you healing, bread. The needs of yourself and your society and your family will come if you come together in the spirit of Christ. But you have to really repent. You can't get just dunked in water. You do that, you just get all wet. You have to really repent. You have to know what you're repenting of. Because the Corbin that you practice today is making the Word of God to none effect. You know, being charitable, again, does not mean just going out and giving to anybody who has a need. Being charitable means to strengthen the poor. That means a network of people coming together, caring about one another as much as they care about themselves. And yes, it will mean the sacrifice of the red heifer, which will be out there, people outside of your congregation, you're helping. This is what the red heifer was all about. Nothing about the color red, nothing about killing a heifer. It had to do with helping people outside the camp, outside the network. You're going to need to do that. You're going to need to do that in earnest. That means that you have to go back to giving. And you have to give to ministers who understand the keys of the kingdom. Men who are walking in that revelation of God. Who are willing to lay down everything to be a servant to you. This is where you have to go. You can't just sit there listening to the radio or listening on the internet. You have to actually start taking steps in the direction of the kingdom in order to receive the mark of God. We know how you receive the mark of the beast is that you reach out and you take his benefits at the expense of your neighbor. How do you receive the mark of God? You come, you reach out to become the benefit of your neighbor. It's really simple. The gospel is not hard. You don't need to belong to this church or that church. You just need to come together and stand for one another in a network that stands for one another, in a network that stands for one another. In other words, that spirit of loving your neighbor as yourself, caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself, is alive in your congregation of ten families. It will be alive in your congregation of ten congregations and alive in your congregation of 100 congregations. And you will be being drawn near the ways of Christ and the kingdom. And a new spirit will begin to flow through you and amongst you, and it will protect you from the spirit of the beast. And though you may even have the mark, you will not have the curse. And the holy angels and the Lamb, and we'll talk about this later, will be there to make sure because they are going to run out and meet you and protect you halfway. But you can't do it like you're, like it's a let's make a deal, God. You have to do it out of love. We do see the word hand at the end of the text, which is translated from the word kire. Its definition is expressed as by the help 
or agency of anyone by means of anyone. It is clear by this definition that the word is not limited to the concept of a physical appendage, this curé. So, this uh, this whole idea of you know the mark of the beast being a chip, and everybody said, "Well, I'm going to avoid the chip." No, avoid the spirit of the beast, the covetous spirit of the beast, the controlling, exercising authority nature of the beast, and return to the nature of Christ, which is giving and forgiving. This is where you got to go. You can't go anywhere else but there if you want to have protection from the beasties that serve the beast. And I tell you that, you know, you you will need that power. Okay, also the preposition in, we say that we'll talk about that one when we turn this preposition in because that's a great misunderstanding. And I hear it all the time from people they project a meaning there and it's not what they think and we'll show you what it actually means when we return Welcome back. We're talking about this idea of the mark of the beast being put into your hand, and people always are saying, "Oh, it's a it's an electronic chip." And like I I pointed out to you that there was a mark of the god, and that wasn't an electronic chip. Why do you think? And, and if if the uh, beast was uh, if the beast was this Nero, then it wasn't an electronic chip. And and many Christians for years thought that he was the beast. But there would be this image of the beast that would come later, that would come in the same spirit as him. And there would be a difference in the image of the beast than there was in the beast because these things are repeated in prophecy. Just as we see history repeating itself, so will prophecy repeat itself. But anyway, if you go back there and everybody says, oh, it's got to be inside the hand, it's got to actually be injected in the hand, it's got to be this chip, so I'm okay until I take the chip and I won't take the chip and on and on and on. But they're not even following Christ. They don't even know where Christ was leading them. They don't know. They're not doing what the early church was doing. Certainly, they're actually doing. They have more in common with Herod, more in common with the Pharisees than they have with Christ and the early church, because they're doing things that the Pharisees did, and the and the uh, followers of Herod did, and the priests of Herod did, and they're not doing the things that the early church was doing, and they're not even doing the things that the church was doing 200 years ago in America which is becoming the entire social welfare of the people, for the people, by the people, through the perfect law of liberty, through faith, hope, and charity. It's that simple. It's not complicated. You don't need a theological degree to know that it's not nice to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, to provide you with health care, public school, or anything else at the point of a gun. That's not charity. That's force. And John the Baptist said it wasn't to be that way. Jesus said it wasn't to be that way. The apostles said it wasn't to be that way. Paul talks about if you don't have charity, this love for one another, you got nothing. 
and it's not love to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, especially when you know that it's not going to be your neighbor that pays for it, but your neighbor's children and grandchildren because the system you are applying to for benefits is broke. Every single country throughout the world, the systems are broke. Every single country, they're broke. And you worry about, oh, but I'm okay unless they put the chip in my hand. Well, what's that word in, that preposition in? You know, it could lead us to believe that the mark must be inside the hand itself, under the skin. Or under the forehead, in the skin. So it's got to be this chip. It's got to be this chip because they've made a chip now that can do this. And they have. But not taking the chip is like leaving Egypt but not taking Egypt out of you. You're just going to be setting up another golden calf somewhere. You know, and I mentioned this earlier in the show, this golden calf that all the city states had. It was recalled in, in the great uh, histories. In Peloponnesian Wars, they referred to that golden statue in the midst of their city-states as the reserve fund. And they actually sawed off limbs to make coins to pay the army. It was a central bank, just like they had in Egypt, where you were going to look to this, someone is going to have control. This is the way of, you know, they didn't have vaults with combination locks. They did have vaults. I mean, Ephesus had, was the World Bank of the time and had one of the strongest vaults in the in all of the Mediterranean, most secure vaults. And the Christians were accused of robbing it. Were they safe crackers? No. Pay attention, folks. Learn history. And it, what it points back to is we have to live by love, not by force. We have to take care of one another. This system is going to fail. It's failing now. We see it everywhere. Repent. Turn around. Flee to the arms of Christ by loving one another. Fulfill your obligation to God and your fellow man in pure religion, unspotted by the constitutional order and systems of governments of the world. Go read our articles on this. We just lay it out for you. I'm not making these definitions up. So what is the definition of in your hand? It's the word epi. That's a generic preposition in the Greek language. In the Bible itself, it is translated upon, come to, by, at, before, over. How many different ways is that is it translated? You, I mean, you're just, and you say, oh, no, it has to be an injection in your hand. No, it doesn't. You know, 196 times it's translated on. So it could be just on your hand. That's the word it's translated most. In, yeah, it's in 120 times, but if you're holding it with your fingers, it's in your hand. 159 times. It's translated upon, upon your hand. You just set it on your hand. Or on two, 41 times, or two, 41 times. It has a miscellaneous translation of 339 different ways. Or at least 339 different locations is translated different ways, including over, or by, or at, or uh, across. 
across my palms with my number. But that still doesn't really matter. What matters is that it's the spirit that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through men who exercise authority one over the other. Jesus said it was not to be that way with you. Your minister should be men who come to serve and provide the social welfare of your society through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. If you are doing it through force, you're doing it by the beasties. That's not a musical group. And this is what you have to repent of. It's going to take some time to learn to be Christians again. This is where you have to go. The forehead is translated from the word metaphone, metaphone. And it is defined as the space between the eyes. Now, almost every place they try to tell you that the chip is coming, they say, it's oh, it's over here on the side by the hairline. Come on, guys. Let's get real. Let's not be pulled away with every rumor of doctrine. You're worried about guillotines and your heads are already cut off. The families are not whole. They're more like the Roman families that were becoming an abomination. They're broken, dismantled. Repent, turn around, start being forgiving. Start being giving. Start being like Christ. I mean, you tell me you've accepted his spirit in you. Why don't I see the fruits of that spirit? Why do I see the fruits of Rome in your doings? So this this meta meta uh, pawn. Some people have the suggestion that the mark is a lithium powered microchip. I write this in the detailed study. This is this is old stuff. It's not new. Uh, powered microchip injected uh, along the hairlines near the ears. Well, that doesn't fit. Metapod. There's, there's no reason to make such an assumption. And, and we'll go into all that in detail before we're done. Uh, the word metapone is often associated with memory or thought in the Greek text. And the use of the word at that time, in the world at that time. If you can't take these words out of the context of how they're used because then that would mean that the apostles using them and writing them down were misleading the people by changing the meaning of words. You've changed the meaning of words. If you only need to remember the name or the number associated with the mark, it could be assumed that the physical possession of the mark is not even necessary and that the reference to the forehead or the space between the eyes is a cognizance of the mind, thought, or memory of the individual. So we read in Revelations 14.10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with the fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. What does that mean? This is anybody who receives the mark, which is a spiritual thing. Not a physical thing, necessarily. It's a mental thing. It's not a physical thing. You can actually just remember these. And it's the result of what? Covetousness. 
desiring the benefits of men who exercise authority one over the other. The beasties of the world, the beasties of the earth, the fathers of the earth who use the beast to control the people. You know, I mean, this is this is a lot of stuff I'm throwing at you, I know. But it, don't get all carried away in even what I'm saying. It's basically, are you loving one another in your churches? Are you taking care of the social welfare? We did it 200 years ago. We did it 100 years ago. We took care of all the social welfare within our churches, within our churches. That simple. We don't do that anymore. We build big churches, we have big screen TVs, we do a lot of singing. People go to churches because, oh, I like the services there, but there are no services there. All your services are down at the altars of the state. And I don't want that to go away because you all starve to death. What I want you to do is get your hearts out of Egypt and get your hearts back into the ways of Christ. I am the voice of one in the wilderness crying, repent, make straight the ways of the Lord. The ways of the Lord is to take care of the needy in pure religion by faith, hope, and charity, and not according to the Corbin of Herod that made the word of God to none effect. What is this wrath of God? The Hebrew word for wrath, elephi, elephi, is uh, translated face, nostril. Nose, before the continents, forbearing, forehead, even worthy is the word they translated into. The same Hebrew letters are also translated also or even or yet or moreover or yea with low, therefore, and much. All those different words are translated from that single word we see as wrath. In the Greek, this wrath is from thumos. And uh, it may include the idea of passion or ardor. And is from the word translated God. Thumos. Theos. Or gods. Passion and ardor of the gods which you serve. The gods many you serve. The word drink is from pino, which does mean to drink. But figuratively, it can mean to receive. To drink of the wine of the wrath of God seems to be a metaphor, meaning that they will receive something poured out at full strength and not very diluted. The word, and he shall be tormented. This is where a lot of confusion comes from. That and and this this whole idea of fire and brimstone. But this shall be tormented can give us the idea that there's some sort of torture or punishment and that the holy angels and the lamb show up to do this. Tormented here is from basanizo, which actually means to test, to test metal. That's what they use. If you were going to test a mineral to see if it was really gold, you would use this word to describe the operation. It's a test. God's not into torture. Satan is into torture. God's into testing to test the heart and the inclination of the heart. That's why we're here. It's a test. And and that's what it means. The test by means of the touchstone, which is a black uh, silica stone used to test the purity of a mineral such as gold or silver by the color of the streak that it makes. 
produced uh, by rubbing it hard, uh, either with uh, you know some sort of you know mineral or metal to test it to see if it really is gold. It might imply uh, torture if you wanted to think of it in that term, but the word was also used by sailors and fishermen uh, whose ships were struggling with a headwind. The same word was used by sailors. The word has this sense of test, and that is the essence of the word. It's not torture. It may seem like torture, especially if you're not passing the test, but it's a test. And the word presence that we see in the text is from this N-O-P-E-O, which is actually a combination of words, which is more commonly translated before or in the sight of, you know, as, you know, this is somebody is observing. To emphasize the nature of these events as a test rather than a cruel punishment, this torment and torture, I must ask why, would the holy angels and the Lamb want to watch people being tortured and suffering? They're not Romans. They're from the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of Rome. They don't take delight in watching you suffer. They're coming to see if you pass the test, and they will intervene. If you repent and turn around to pass that test, according to the Spirit of Christ. Does the good shepherd take delight in the punishment of his sheep? I can tell you this. I raise sheep. You know, it doesn't work to push them, to punish them. I mean, I've been tempted because <laughs> they've been stupid at times. But it doesn't work. That's not the purpose of the holy angels and the Lamb, to punish you. It's not a torment. It's a test. It's a test of our love and faith and hope and humility. Are we willing to forgive and give? Don't say, don't tell me I paid and I want it back. It isn't there. It's gone. You can't get it back without cursing your children. Start being real churches like the first century church who opted out. Now, you can't opt out yet in most cases. You're bound in Egypt. You must pay your tally of bricks. But start gleaning in the field at night for your straw, for your benefits, for your leeks and onions. So we see in Revelations 14.11, And the smoke of their torment, the smoke of their test, ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. <coughs> Note the word and again. And, and, and. You may have to be a part of that system as you've immersed yourself in their filthy water. And only God can save you now. But he saves you because you, like the prodigal son, say, I am going to seek to go back to my father's house and even be a servant. And if you do that with your whole heart, mind, and soul, he will make you a son. And you will see your pastors and your ministers 
performing the miracles that was to be granted to those who accept the real Christ, the real spirit of Christ in their hearts and in their minds. And they have to be willing to give up everything to be there. Many will tell you that the smoke and their torment ascendeth up means that if you take the mark, you will be cast into hell. This is a conclusion based, again, on the word torment, which we have seen has to do with a test. And the words fire and brimstone are not the words for hell. They're not synonymous with the word for hell. Fire and brimstone appears during the time of the liberation and redemption of the Israelites in Egypt. I suspect that since most of the world is now back in the bondage, worse than that of Egypt, I mean, the bondage of Egypt is 10% of everything you earn, one-fifth, had to go to the government, and the government provided you with your benefits, your straw, your leeks and onions. They took care of you. And that's how you went into bondage, is you didn't have means to take care of yourself. And the reason why is you had thrown your own brother into bondage, and so they, therefore you went into bondage. Some people say, well, God wanted it that way so that they would be spared from the famine that was to come. No, if Joseph was with them, they could have put up. And Egypt would have had to come to them, and they could have been as benevolent as Christ, as forgiving as Christ, and not brought Egyptians back into bondage. See, the Egyptians themselves went into bondage to the Pharaoh. Christ doesn't want you in bondage. He wants you to be free souls. He wants you to learn to be giving, to freely give and freely receive, caring for one another in love. This is what he wants. But anyway, we see that fire and brimstone back there in the days of the Israelites in Egypt. And I suspect that history will repeat itself. And you will see that fire and brimstone again. And actually, I can tell you the physics of it because there is a physics to it. You know, in the laws of nature, and nature's God, that this will come. But I'm not going to give you that now. Because you need to know this other thing, this this idea of love, faith, hope, and charity. Or you won't pass the test. Just knowing what the fire and brimstone is isn't going to help you pass the test. You, you're looking for an edge so that you don't have to live by faith and hope and charity and humility. I can't, I'm not giving you that edge. The world is back in the bondage of Egypt. And it's reasonable that they should be. So it's reasonable to believe that we will see fire and brimstone again. The word smoke ascending has also been interpreted as coming from hell. Throughout the Bible, the idea of smoke going up... Uh, has to do with accepting the sacrifice of the people. That's a good thing. The smoke going up time and time again, forever and ever. Many, the smoke will go up, and their sacrifice will be accepted, and they will receive the blessing of God. This is not all bad news. It may be bad news for you if you don't want to live by faith, hope, and charity, and love for one another. If you don't want to do that, this is bad news. Because your smoke's not going up. Your sacrifice is not going to be accepted. You're going to sacrifice and be sacrificed by the beasties. Throughout the Bible, this idea of smoke going up has to do with this accepting of sacrifice as worthy. 
in a time of great tests, men will be called on to sacrifice many things, in some cases everything, including their own lives, in order to pass the test, hence the smoke going up. So the smoke going up, that's a good thing. They draw on pictures that it's a bad thing. I'm telling you, the test is coming. The word rest is not from the word uh, anesthes, meaning a loosening, which is translated rest three times, and liberty to be eased once eat, uh, you know, where you're set free or set at ease. Nor is it from uh, comesis, meaning uh, reposing, taking a rest, going to sleep, you know, laying back. It is from anapasis, which actually means intermission, cessation of any motion, business or labor, stopping of labor. As more in, is revealed about this, the nature of this test, our understanding of this passage may increase when they talk about ceasing of labor, uh, this business of labor. One may see in the sentence two different points of view. One is that the smoke from the test goes up forever and the other who uh, do not repent, change their ways, get no cessation or intermission from their labors, their bondage. It may help to examine more of the context of this in one line, which is in Revelations 14, 12. Uh, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is the key. This is what you want to be doing, keeping the commandments. That's why Jesus said, you want eternal life, keep the commandments. This is where we need to go, and this is where we will go next time. The keys of the kingdom, until then, peace be upon your house, and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www dot his holy church dot net.